Welcome back, everybody. I'm Olivia, and if with any luck, you'll hear Coco chomping on her dry food in the background. And this is Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, the podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. And uh, I guess we're going to be about a, a little less late than last episode. I would have been a little more on time this week if I didn't accidentally take a nap every day after work this past week. But hey, that reminded me to add in a couple episodes about sleep this year. I had been wanting to do a series of sorts about sleep, uh, talking about things like what we know about how sleep happens, circadian rhythms, uh, and then going into some peculiar sleeping habits from the animal world. So we're going to start dotting those episodes in. If Shark Week wasn't coming up soon, it would be the next episode, but I kind of had the summer nicely planned out around that, so if you're interested in learning about sleep, those episodes will start turning up towards the end of the summer, so once the once August rolls around, keep an eye out for it then. And now for this week's episode. With my assorted napping this week, I didn't quite get all of the research I wanted to done, so this is going to be a little bit of a shorter one, and I am planning on revisiting uh, this topic again in a later episode to maybe flesh out the details a little bit more. Uh, but this week, we are talking about some critters that transition from male to female and also female to male. And this is a much more common occurrence in nature than I think uh, most people are aware of. So I think in maybe a future episode, we'll, we'll dive into it a little bit deeper when I don't spend all of my research time asleep. Uh, so... I think most people are aware of the ability of clownfish, which are also called anemone fish, to change sex. Clownfish are all in one subfamily in the family Poma centridae, which includes the clownfish and the damselfish. Many members of this family, clownfish included, have a pretty strict social hierarchy in their little fishy societies. In clownfish, it's usually the biggest female that's at the top of the hierarchy, and it's only the two fish that are the like the dominant male, dominant female that are having all of the fish babies. If something happens to this female, then the largest dominant male will usually transition to female and be the new dominant female of the group. Uh, so uh, that would mean that in Finding Nemo, after the unfortunate Barracuda incident at the beginning, where uh, Nemo's mom, Coral, unfortunately doesn't make it, and Finding Nemo's been out for like 20 years now, so if this is a spoiler for you, I'm sorry, you should have seen it by now. But after Coral died, then uh, Nemo's dad would have then become Nemo's mom. Clownfish aren't the only fish in this family that transition from uh, between the two sexes, and really this life event isn't even uh, unique to the Poma Centridae family. There are other fish and other families that are capable of doing the same thing. It's well documented in the wrasses as well. Uh, so in addition to the clownfish in the Poma Centridae family, many damselfish can also do this. And it's the damselfish that I focused on for this week's research. And I will say one thing that I wasn't expecting when I did get started on the research for this episode is just the diversity of social habits in these fish. Uh, some species are solitary and live on their own, 
Some are gregarious and form large schools, like the surgeon Major Fish, uh, whose scientific name is Arabic-based instead of Greek or Latin-based, so um, I am not used to the sequence of consonants, but uh, Abudifduf Saxatilis? I'm sorry. That form schools of several hundred, and then we have the social fish, which are different than the gregarious fish because scientists aren't always good at naming things. And to make it extra fun, uh, one of the papers I was reading broke down these three groups into further classifications of more specific social structures, so many damselfish species apparently have some pretty complicated social lives. I'm going to post the sources um, in the show description, so if you really want to get into some damselfish socioecology levels, all of my sources were freely available. One or two of them you do have to go through Google Scholar to get past the paywall, but no paywalls here. We are all open source. When we have social damselfish, these are typically the fish that exist in smallish groups, at least fewer than the several hundred you'd find in a school. And they have those dominance hierarchies that we see in clownfish. So they'll have their little nesting sites and their little refuges, which would just be somewhere to hide. So the clownfish, they have their sea anemones, but other species um, in the damselfish, they'll hang out around things like branched coral. And then the dominant individual in the group is typically very territorial over their spaces. It's also in these small social groups where the sex changes are typically happening. So many damselfish species have been studied uh, pretty well to look into how and why this happens. And uh, one of the well-studied ones is the Ambon damselfish, uh, Ponocentris amboinensis. This fish lives in the Indo-Pacific along the Great Barrier Reef. Their social hierarchies are kind of the opposite of that of the clownfish. So remember I said in the clownfish you have your dominant female. If that female disappears, then you have the male changes to female. In the ambon damselfish, we have one dominant male, and then the females in the group exist in a dominance hierarchy where the larger females have more power, so to speak, against the smaller females. In the case of these fish, if something happens to the dominant male, then the dominant female, the alpha female, will change to male instead and all of the fish that were below her in the hierarchy will then move on up. So how does this work and how do these fish go about the, all these transitions? So there are some things that we know and there's plenty that we don't know about how the system works and I'm sure there are things that I just didn't come up in the research that I had time to do. Um, but what we, what we do know is that fish are, or these fish, the damselfish, are classified as sequential hermaphrodites. And then from there, either prodandrous sequential hermaphrodites or protogenous uh, sequential hermaphrodites. What that means with the prodandrous hermaphrodites is that they initially develop into males. And then at some point later in life, if and when the opportunity presents itself, then they can turn into females. With a protogenous sequential hermaphrodite, they initially develop into female and then later change into male fish. So with being a sequential hermaphrodite, uh, they're not functionally male or male and female at the same time. It's at different stages of their life that they present the different characteristics. Some of the physiological, how this happens, does sound like it still needs to be uncovered and like not even like by me needs to be uncovered, like by scientists needs to be uncovered. 
Um, but the fish that ends up being the ones to change do typically have particular characteristics that are unique to that group or generally just make them a better, uh, a more fit individual, especially in the case of the Ambon damselfish. So uh, vertebrates have a sort of bony structure in the inner ear. It's made of calcium carbonate that helps to do things like process acceleration. So this is involved in processing like um, our movement forward and backwards in space, falling, things like that. And um, it's this structure that also helps with balance and movement, all things associated with acceleration. And this particular section of the inner ear we are looking at is the otolith. And in fish, the otolith also helps to process sounds. So it's like a inner ear bone that also, you know, it's with the ear. So in fish, the otolith accrues calcium throughout the course of their lives. So you can actually use their growth, wing, their growth rings to age a fish. And this is one of the more reliable ways to get the age of a fish. Unfortunately, they do have to be dead to get the otolith because you have to dissect it out. And you also really have to know, uh, you have to know what you're doing. It's a fairly delicate and really just small thing. Um, so you can also use scales to age a fish if you don't want to kill it or can't kill it for whatever reason. But if you need to get a much more accurate idea, otoliths are what you want to do. So for where, why are otoliths relevant? Why am I talking about them? Uh, the conditions that a paired fish is under has some effect of the characteristics of the fish embryo. So the maternal, uh, so the parent, there is a very strong maternal effect here with the, especially with the damselfish. Uh, so when a mom fish has lower cortisol levels, so lower stress levels, then uh, more of their offspring tend to have characteristics consistent with female fish that later change to male. With baby Ambon damselfish that will later go on to transition, they'll be higher in the hierarchy, they tend to be born with a smaller otolith and uh, at this point in time we don't really know why that helps. Uh, for other species of fish, it's a bigger otolith in the individuals that end up changing. So. Uh, that's a species-specific sort of thing. And then the hatchling and the yolk sac sizes that the fish have are also going to be dependent on the cortisol levels of the mother. So um, if you have a, if you're under lower stress levels, then the offspring you have will be better geared to, or they'll be more likely to be at the top of the hierarchy level. And therefore, they're going to be, uh, you know, they're going to be bigger top of the hierarchy and have a higher fitness level. And being a bigger fish uh, and being at the top of the hierarchy does come with many benefits and not just the ability to change to a male in the case of Ampon damselfish or female in the case of the humbug damselfish. One of the big benefits is the ability to just have all of the offspring and therefore you are the fittest of the fish. So, as a refresher, in evolution, the idea of fitness means that not only can you just have a lot of offspring, but those offspring then tend to also survive into adulthood and have their own offspring. So, uh, the more offspring you have, the more genes you're passing on, the higher your fitness level. So, since we've been sticking with the Ambon damselfish for most of this, if you are a large female Ambon damselfish, 
then you are at the top of that social hierarchy. And um, not only will you be the mother to a lot of baby, a lot more baby fish, but if the male in your group drops dead, then when you then change to male, you have the opportunity to be have even more offspring because then you'll be the you'll be the father to a lot of offspring. So this idea goes into what's referred to as the size advantage hypothesis, uh, which states that a large individual that can change sex in their lifetime will have many more offspring with over that life than a fish that is smaller and cannot. Uh, so there are other fun advantages to being born a bigger fish and being at the top of the hierarchy chain. In the Ambon damselfish, it was seen that the male was less aggressive to the dominant female and was already noticeably more aggressive towards even the beta female. So even if you're second in, in command, the aggression kicks up. So as a result, so as a result, the dominant female has less stress because they're experiencing less aggression. Um, they're also going to have access to more feeding areas since that will be un uh, more unrestricted by the male. And there aren't any other females above her to say, no, that's mine. Therefore, she also has the ability to move around more, potentially visiting other groups. Um, and also, since less stress, her offspring tend to be bigger and also the ones that undergo sex change. And this leads to the possibility that dominant fish, this is kind of going into another evolutionary sort of idea, um, but since the mother experiences less stress, the offspring tend to be bigger, be more fit, uh, there is a possibility that the dominant fish will always produce offspring that then become other dominant fish of the next generation. This isn't a super official phenomenon yet, but uh, one or two of the papers I looked at did propose this idea of a silver spoon effect, which was pretty much just that the dominant fish produce dominant offspring, and having that sort of rich start to life puts you at a higher chance of being successful. Before we wrap it up, most fish can only change in one direction, so either male to female or female to male, and not really both. There are some species of fish, though, that can change uh, bidirectionally. Only about 31 species, but uh, 20 of those are documented to do that in the lab only. There have only been about 11 species that have been documented to be able to have both changes in nature, so both female to male and male to female. One of the more recently confirmed ones is a damselfish, the humbug damselfish, Dicillus oranus. It was previously known to have the female to male transition, but then in 2015, a group of researchers observed a male to female. Like I said earlier, I think this will be a topic that will be revisited in the future, potentially more about damselfish. Um, but also, like I said, this sort of phenomenon exists in nature more than most people are aware, um, even in mammals. So I may also find another critter to talk about next time. In the meantime, if you're interested in learning more about uh, transitions and queerness in nature, if you don't already listen to it, there's a great podcast called Ologies. They have a two-part episode on neuroendocrinology that focuses pretty heavily on it. And happy Pride, everyone. Thank you for listening and letting me tell you all about fish that can transition. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and know someone in your life that could use some fabulous fish facts, which we all know is everybody, share the podcast with your friends. They can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podbean, 
pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you can be notified of future episodes and also leave a review, especially a five-star review to tell people how awesome these fun facts are. There, those are all great ways to support this podcast and help new people find us. If you're on Facebook or Instagram, be sure to give us a follow at Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky on Facebook and Quirky, Creepy, Freaky Pod on Instagram to get all the pictures and updates on the podcast. Thank you to my sister, Kaylee Strite, for creating the theme music, and thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. <laughs>